Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Story Matters podcast, where story matters. My name is Nick Alamonos. I am the author of the Anya series, and I'm also a lover of books. And here we discuss books and review books and storytelling in general. Now, before I get into the topic of the day, I would like to reach out to whoever sent me condolences for the death of my father. As you know, my father passed away last month and I uh, created a podcast where I shared some of his life story. And that life story is very long and involved and there's really enough content there to create an entire book from his life. And that is something that my dad wanted me to do. But I told him I wasn't a biographer. That really wasn't my forte. And also that I was very busy writing my own books. But I think someday I might, you know, if if I have the time, uh, go back and write his biography. But in the meantime, I wanted to share his story with the world as he told it with his voice. So there are definitely going to be more episodes about my father's amazing life. But in the meantime, I did want to talk about some books. So today we are discussing a book by Emily St. John Mandel. And the book is Station Eleven, which is a national bestseller. The Seattle Times calls it darkly lyrical, a truly haunting book, one that is hard to put down. Entertainment Weekly called it tender and lovely, equal parts page turner and poem. And People Magazine said it was mesmerizing. The San Francisco Chronicle said it's a superb novel that leaves us not fearful for the end of the world, but appreciative of the grace of everyday existence. So this is very high praise, which is one of the reasons why I picked it up. And I do agree that the book is very well written and there are passages here that are very poetic. And, you know, from time to time, there are moments in here that made me stop and think, which I think a good poetic novel does. Even George R. R. Martin got in on the action. I just noticed in the inside of the book, he called the book deeply melancholy, but beautifully written and wonderfully elegaic, a book that I will long remember and return to. That's pretty high praise from George R. R. Martin. But here's the thing. Like most books that get this kind of praise, I was not as impressed. That's not to say I didn't like the book. I did. But I think the problem is I just finished Cloud Cuckoo Land. And Cloud Cuckoo Land has a very similar premise and a very similar writing style. Both of these books, they have multiple point of view characters, and they jump through different time periods. They go back and forth, and they tell a story about the end of the world, about an apocalypse. And in both books, there is this recurring theme where they're going back to a story. And so in Cloud Cuckoo Land, the story is Cloud Cuckoo Land. And in Station Eleven, just like the title states, 
It is a comic book about a space station called Station Eleven. But unlike Cloud Cuckoo Land, I really didn't feel the significance of Station Eleven to the story. Why was Station Eleven so important to the characters? How did it really impact the plot? It seemed kind of random and incidental. It didn't really feel like the comic book had any significant bearing. Like, it feels like you could have removed this part of the story. You could have removed the Station Eleven comic, and everything would have made perfect sense. Unlike Cloud Cuckoo Land, where everything really surrounds this story. When you read Cloud Cuckoo Land and then you go to Station Eleven, it you know makes you think less highly of the book that you read that is almost like an imitation. I don't want to say that one person copied the other. I think it's probably a coincidence that these two stories are, are so similar because I think after reading Cloud Cuckoo Land, I wanted to read something in the same vein, in the same style, dealing with the same themes because I am interested in reading about cultures and societies and histories. And I'm very interested in apocalyptic stories. I'm very interested in characters and situations that are very extreme, because that's something that I always question myself. What would I do if the world that we knew ended? What would I do if society collapsed? And what kind of a world would I live in? What kind of a life would I have? Would it be worth living? This is something that has been explored in other books I've read and really enjoyed. Probably the best one was Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which is also the most dark and depressing future I can imagine. But Station Eleven is different. It's a much more lighthearted story. It's not quite as depressing. One thing I liked about it is that it, shows a lot more of the future than Cloud Cuckoo Land. I think Cloud Cuckoo Land only kind of hints at the apocalypse and you really don't see what the world is like. It, you could almost read Station Eleven as a continuation of Cloud Cuckoo Land in a way, because at the end of Cloud Cuckoo Land, the character gets out of this spaceship, which she thinks is in space, but it's actually parked in Greenland. And she gets out of the ship, and then there's really just sort of an epilogue where you just say she discovers that civilization is still around, and she lives out the rest of her life, and she has a couple of kids, and that's it. But the technology has basically gone away. But you don't really read about what life is like in the future. Station Eleven goes much more into that. It goes much deeper into that. The story is told through the perspective of several different characters. One of them is named Jeevan, and he lives in New York City, and he's introduced to the story when he interacts with two of the other main characters. He interacts with Arthur Leander, who's an actor, and then this young girl named Kirsten Raymond, who is also a young stage actor. And Jeevan tries to save Arthur's life because he has a heart attack, which I thought was a little weird because Arthur had a heart attack instead of dying of the flu, because this is the premise. It's kind of like Stephen King's The Stand. There's another book that I think really dealt with the end of the world 
in a better way, except for the end. I didn't like the end of the stand. I thought Stephen King didn't know how to end it. And that's essentially what happens in this book. There's a super flu. It kills most of humanity, leaving a very tiny percentage of people who still exist. But one of the main characters dies of a heart attack. And I thought that was a little odd. I'm like, maybe he could have been the first victim to die of the flu. That could have tied the story threads together a little better. And then Jeevan, he tries to resuscitate him and he fails because he wants to become a paramedic. And then Jeevan leaves and from the other main characters, he never meets them again. He never talks to them again. Nothing he does really affects the plot of the book. And it just seems really random. Like one thing that I like to do when I'm writing a book is I like to think of a good novel like a house of cards. And the idea is that each chapter and each paragraph is like a card in that house of cards. And if you remove one of the cards, the whole thing collapses. So I don't like to write even a single chapter that is unnecessary, but I like tightly knit stories that all kind of fit together like a perfect puzzle. Now, I realize that not every novel is like that. And sometimes if, the, you know, I have a really good idea for a chapter or an idea that I just think really will enhance the book and make it more interesting, then maybe I'll make an exception. But in this book, the author spends so much time with Jeevan, you expect that he's going to play some major role in the events of the story, and you never, you never see anything. You know, he just kind of lives out his life as a doctor in a small village. And I just couldn't help but feel like, why was this guy even in the book? Maybe you could argue that we needed to see the end of the world from different perspectives. But again, I don't really feel like what was conveyed through Jeevan's eyes was really that relevant. I feel like the end of the world could have been explored from the other characters. And equally bewildering is the character of Arthur. Now, Arthur is an actor, and we learn about his entire life from the time he's a young man to how he you know, goes and tries to break into acting, and he has a hard time, and then he has a best friend who's gay, and then the guy gets married several times. He gets married like three times, and he has a, a couple children with his different wives, and then the guy dies before the apocalypse happens. And so I'm thinking, well, what was the point of knowing this guy's life if he dies before the main event? Like the first chapter deals with the end of the world, but then she keeps going back to before the end of the world and tells us a bunch of stuff that's kind of irrelevant to the apocalypse. Why did we need to know the life story of Arthur if the guy dies before the main event of the book? I don't really understand. It's it's weird. What links Arthur's story to the rest of the book is that one of his wives, his first wife, is a comic book artist. And she's working privately, she doesn't show this to anybody, on the comic Station Eleven, which is also about the end of the world. And it's about how a bunch of humans leave Earth and they build this giant space station kind of like in Wally, to survive the apocalypse. And it can't go back to Earth because the Earth is too toxic to live on. 
Now, the woman who wrote this book, she also dies, but her comic survives. And her comic ends up in the hands of Kirsten, who is arguably the main character, even though she doesn't, she only gets a little bit more time in the book than the other characters. And Kirsten is kind of collecting issues of Station Eleven because she wants to get the whole story. And I guess this comic book is meaningful to her because she had feelings for Arthur. She looked up to him because he was this great actor. And Arthur kind of gave her this comic because his wife gave it to him and he gave it to her. And so that was her way of connecting to the past. But again, what was the significance of that comic? How did it really impact her life? I don't really know. And what's equally bewildering is that this author talks a lot about Shakespeare because Kirsten is a Shakespearean actress. So they do a lot of Shakespeare and especially King Lear. They do King Lear a lot for some reason. And why is King Lear and Shakespeare is shown to be relevant to the future of humanity. I think at one point they say what's great about Shakespeare is his stories are timeless, but then if his stories are so timeless and, and have these universal themes, why wasn't station 11? Why didn't they have that similar impact? But when you name the book station 11 and the only thing that connects these different characters is this comic you would just expect that the comic would be a little more relevant to the overall story. Finally, uh, they talk about Arthur's second wife. Now, she survives the apocalypse because she's in an airplane, and the plane lands at an airport. And this I really like because what happens is the people get stuck on this airport, and they're the only survivors of the apocalypse. And they basically turn the airport into this miniature village. They utilize everything in the airport to create this more primitive survival. So, for example, the runways, because of these long stretches of land, they get turned into crop fields. And, of course, they use all the rooms and all the terminals as places to sleep. And sometimes they even... They turn the planes that are grounded into mini apartments. They take you know modern things and they utilize it. So Arthur's second wife is there and she's taking care of his son. And his son is also reading Station Eleven. And what happens is he goes off because he's really disturbed that one of the planes that landed at the airport the people were not allowed to get off of the plane because they all had the disease and they didn't want the disease to spread. And so they just left them in this plane to die. This kid really was disturbed by this. And so he runs off and he becomes a cult leader. He gets really into the Bible for some reason. And he goes around kind of killing people to take their resources and he's going to try to start his own religion. And he believes that the apocalypse 
is something from Revelation because the Bible says that the world will end and then be remade anew. And I guess he feels like this was, you know, fated to happen, that the world would end and be remade anew. But all of this is kind of glossed over. We don't really spend a lot of time with this kid. So the way that this cult develops, it's very brief. And what's really awkward is that Kirsten, she encounters these people. And again, this is a big spoiler. So if you want to read this, I wouldn't listen any further. When Kirsten encounters this guy, they have a, a very brief struggle and she throws a dagger at him and kills him. And that's it. He just dies. And then I think she discovers that he was reading Station Eleven also. And she's like, why do you have this comic? And he dies before he can tell her. And that's it. That's just the end. And you're like, okay, what was the meaning of that? I don't know. He just dies. And it just it just seems like, oh, we, we hardly knew you. It's like, here's a villain introduced late in the story, not very well developed, and then he just dies. And then eventually Kirsten makes her way to the airport where she finds shelter. And she meets up with the, the prophet's mother. Um, and this is like 20 years after the apocalypse. And she also meets with Arthur's gay friend who has a museum called the Museum of Civilization. And this is a part I really liked. I like this idea of people reminiscing about the past and thinking about all the great things that we used to have. And so in this museum, you know, he has things like computers and televisions, and he has a Nintendo Game Boy, and he has newspapers and magazines and books, and all the things that we, you know, disappeared from civilization because of the apocalypse. I really like that part because I like history, and I've been to a lot of museums. I love going to museums. And oftentimes, when I look at these Egyptian relics and these Roman and Greek relics inside of these glass cases, I often wonder to myself, is there going to be a time a thousand years from now where people go to a museum and they look at the relics from our time and they're going to look at our computers and our game systems in the same way that we look at all of the things that people from the past created. So I like that idea. But again, the author really doesn't do a lot with that idea. I, I felt like she could have done more with it, but she just doesn't. She's like, here's a good idea, but what does it mean? What does it signify? Is she trying to say that civilization is, is good and we should treasure the, the great things we have? Or is she trying to say that we don't need these things from civilization to be happy because people do find a kind of contentment and they kind of live okay? Another thing that I really liked from this book is how the younger generation doesn't really seem to know anything's wrong. In fact, there are kids that are born after the apocalypse, and the apocalypse, you know, happened 20 years before. So you have people that are like young adults, like 18, 19, who never even knew what the world used to be like. And I find that really interesting because for them, 
this is just the way life is. This is just the way the world is. I find that really interesting is how adaptable human beings are. Everything we really know about life is we're living in a microcosm of time and place that really gives us a sense of what is normal. Even kids that remember the apocalypse, even kids are a little older than 20, and Kirsten is a little older than 20 years old, she remembers what the world used to be like, but because she was a child, it was a lot easier for her to adapt her mind to these changing circumstances. And again, that's another thing that I really like, because I think there's a lot of truth to that. So much of our perceptions of the world revolve around the age we were when we perceived those things. That's why I think we're so nostalgic because everything that we grew up with seems like it was the best thing in the world. And everything that we experience as we get older, we're much more jaded and much more cynical. I do read a lot of books because I saw that they were movies or TV shows. But it's not like I'm thinking, okay, only books based on TV shows are good. It's just that those movies and shows are just, they're really great advertisements for the book. It's like, this is the ultimate book trailer is a TV show. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll see the trailer for the movie and then I'll go read the book. That's how I ended up reading Cloud Atlas. I saw the trailer for the movie Cloud Atlas. Then I read the book and then I watched the movie because the trailer was just so mind-blowing. I said, wow, this looks really interesting. And I read the book. But in this case, I didn't even know that Station Eleven was a book. But after watching the show, I could tell that it was. There were a lot of changes made in the show. Some of the changes were made in order to correct what I see as flaws that I mentioned in this book. For example, I felt like the characters are very disjointed. They're not very connected. And the show, I think, tries to connect them more. For example, instead of Jeevan meeting the main characters and then never talking to them again, he actually becomes a big part of Kirsten's life, which I thought was a brilliant change and I thought was a great improvement to the story. Instead of having him incidentally related to one of the main characters, Jeevan is actually somebody who takes Kirsten under his wing. He tries to take her back to her house and her parents are at home and they suspect that maybe her parents died of the super flu. And so he recommends that she stay with him until things get better. And so she stays in his apartment and things never really improve. And they barricade themselves in this big apartment building. And then eventually years pass and they go out on the road. And it's just Jeevan and her kind of surviving a little bit like The Last of Us. Somehow they separate and she goes off with this group of actors. So I thought that was an improvement because it actually links the characters in some meaningful way. Another thing that I felt was an improvement is the prophet. He actually meets Kirsten earlier in the story and they have a number of encounters 
And she never actually kills the guy. He kind of survives to the end of the show, which I thought was very different. That's why when he died in the book, I was really shocked. I was like, really, he's dead already? But in the book, I think they recognized that they needed, we needed to have more time with this character. You can't just introduce a character like this and then just kill him off. That's not good storytelling. And then, of course, they go a little bit into the life of Arthur, but not as much. I think they don't deal as much with his marriages because they probably felt like it really isn't that important. And they spend a lot more time with the future people, which is what I think the author should have done, spend more time with the characters in the future getting to know, because Kirsten is an actress and she travels with a, a troupe of different actors. And in the show, we get to know more about these individual characters and who they are and what their personalities are like and what their motivations are like. Whereas in the book, they're just kind of glossed over very quickly. So we don't really develop a connection for them in the book as much. Now, that's not to say that everything was better in the show. I actually think in some major ways, the show was worse than the book. And I think the biggest, most baffling thing about the show is that they show how the prophet becomes the prophet. And then this guy does some really, really terrible things. He actually brainwashes a bunch of children to follow him. And then he straps bombs to the children's bodies and he uses them as suicide bombers. And at one point, the child goes into a building and he blows up everybody in the building and kills a lot of people, including the child, obviously. This is a really terrible thing. So you're thinking, man, this guy is awful, right? This is a terrible villainous character. He's, he's using children as bombs. I mean, you can't get more evil than that. But then what happens is you find out the character's backstory and you find out that the character becomes the prophet because he's very angry at the fact that they left everybody on the plane to die. And that really bothered him. And this doesn't make any sense to me that he would be such a sensitive kid that he would be tormented by the fact that they left people on the plane to die, but then he would grow up to use children as, as suicide bombers. That, that's a huge leap to go from one to the other. And they don't really explain how that leap in personality happens. And they don't even really suggest that he's a different person necessarily. Because what ends up happening is the kid goes back to, now he's in his 20s, but he goes back to the airport where his mom is and he blows up the Museum of Civilization for some reason. And that's what I think would have made a better title for this book, by the way. I would have called it the Museum of Civilization. And I think it would have tied into the themes better. But anyway, so he goes back to the airport and we find out his tragic backstory. And then they're all chummy, which was like, what? Like, everything is forgiven. They all kind of understand each other now. And they kind of go their separate ways. Kirsten goes off 
with her little troop of actors and he goes off with his group of terrorists and it's all like, yeah, okay, we understand why you're a terrorist. And I'm like, what? Did, they, did you forget that he murdered children? Like, I just thought that it was so bizarre to me that that was like the biggest flaw in that show was that they're all just kind of chummy with child murder. They don't arrest the guy, don't imprison him. They don't put him on trial. They don't say, okay, yeah, we understand you felt bad when you were a kid, but come on, you killed children with bombs. No, that's okay because he has a tragic backstory, so all, all is forgiven. It just didn't, it didn't ring true to me. And for me, that was the biggest flaw in the show. Thank God that's not in the book. So I, at least the author knew better than to try to redeem what is otherwise a redeemable character. And I really do like stories about characters that are being redeemed. Like in The Princess of Anya, one of the big themes is redemption. Democron, who's one of the main characters along with Princess Radia, he does some really terrible things in his past. And he's seeking redemption. But he never really does anything that's so terrible that it's inconceivable that he could be redeemed for doing that. I, I really had to walk a very fine line with, at what point do you go too far where you can't come back from that? And so I kind of made sure that, yeah, Democra did some really bad things, but he didn't do unforgivable things. But I have to say that's dropping a bomb to a child and using the child as a, as a delivery mechanism to kill innocent people I'm sorry, but that is unforgivable. You you don't come back from that. Perhaps if the author had tried to make this really long story about this character's trying to come back from that, I could understand. But they don't even try. I mean, this character, there isn't even another redemption arc. So I'm glad to see that the book did not have that problem. But again, I felt like the biggest problem with this book is that the threads were just not tied together. She talks a lot about Shakespeare and about King Lear. And I guess the connection she makes is that King Lear is kind of a proxy for Arthur because Arthur, just like King Lear, had three wives, just like King Lear had three daughters, and he wasn't the best guy but when he dies, I think people kind of remember him more fondly, I guess, the way they remember King Lear. If I had written this book, is I would have used Hamlet, especially the to be or not to be speech. Because when we're talking about the end of the world, we're talking about is life worth living after the apocalypse, after everything is gone and everything is destroyed, the life is so difficult, is it worth to keep going? That is a major theme in Hamlet. So I think that if I was going to write about Shakespeare within the context of an apocalyptic story, I would not have chosen King Lear to do that. I would have, I would have used Hamlet. For me, that was like a missed opportunity not to insert the to be or not to be soliloquy in a story like this. So it suggested that after this 
apocalypse because a lot of people end up dying, they lose everything, right? They lose all technology is lost. Basically, they can't do anything. They can't even drive like a car because I guess the gasoline goes bad after a number of years. And that's true. But that's not to say that you couldn't have a level of technology, especially after 20 years, that all technology would be gone after 20 years. I find that hard to believe. I mean, first of all, you can still generate electricity using nuclear power, using hydroelectric dams, using solar panels. I mean, did all solar electricity go away? There's so many ways to generate electricity. I mean, when I was a kid, I had a hand-cranked powered radio where all you had to do is turn a crank really quickly and you could play the radio or have a flashlight working. So there's all these ways of generating electricity that have nothing to do with gasoline. And so the fact that in the future, all technology is just gone, I didn't find that very plausible. That's not to say that there wouldn't be a fundamental shift in human beings' relation to technology. Uh, it might be difficult to bring back certain things like the internet and maybe TV shows and stuff like that. But you know, they don't even have light bulbs. They don't have music players, record players. I mean, they don't have anything. I thought that was a little bit dubious, especially after 20 years. I think civilization will probably claw its way back because the reason that people didn't have technology in ancient times is because they didn't understand technology. But once electricity was discovered, it wasn't that difficult to keep the lights on. If we were to lose 99% of the population, maybe the electric grid would probably go down for a couple years. But after 20 years, I think things would start coming back. And I think people would find a way to even go to the oil refineries and develop a way to make more gas, make more fuel, or make different kinds of fuel. You could use ethanol. You can use alcohol. There's so many ways to power an engine besides using petroleum refined from, you know, an oil rig. I mean, there's a lot of ways to power things. We know how to do things. It's not that difficult. If all the machinery and all the equipment and all the guidebooks are just left for people to discover, I think technology would come back pretty quickly. I think it'd be more of like a Mad Max scenario than it would be a world where we lost everything. And the last thing I'll say about this book was that this author needed to be more of a pantser and less of a plotter. And I never thought I would say anything like that because I have always been a plotter. When I started out, all my stories were meticulously planned ahead of time. And I had all these really great ideas for my book. And I would write down the notes of all the things I wanted to do. And then I would try to work in all these ideas into my book. Well, then I read Stephen King's On Writing, and he recommends never using an outline, and never plotting. He recommends doing the pantser method, which is basically writing by the seat of your pants. And by that, he means 
you sit down, you start writing, and then you see where the story naturally goes, where it naturally flows, and then you write the next chapter, and then you go to the next chapter. And Stephen King really uses that technique to great effect. Now, I have also criticized him a lot because I really felt like the Dark Tower series would have benefited greatly if he had thought some of the stuff out ahead of time. But at the same time, I can see where the story flows very nicely, where you'll be reading about a certain character and you want to follow that character's footsteps and you want to experience what that character experiences. And that's what's really great about the Panzer Method is that you really helps you get inside the character's head. With a book like Station Eleven, I could tell that the author really used the plotting method and she had, I, th- I felt, I feel like before she started writing, she had all these story threads in her mind, right? She had the story of Jeevan and the story of Arthur and the story of Kirsten. And then she tried to kind of tie them together. But the problem is that they sort of were unnaturally tied together. And a lot of times I kind of wanted her to follow a character a little longer. Like I wanted to know, okay, what is Kirsten's experience like? What was it like growing up in an apocalyptic world where you are wandering the country as a Shakespearean actor? That's really interesting to me. I would have liked to know more about that experience, but we don't really get much of that because we have to keep cutting back to all these other characters. I feel like Station Eleven would have been a much better book if it had just stuck with one character. And it's not to say that all books are like that. Clearly, some books benefit from having multiple point of views. But I think this book, it would have been much more interesting if the author had just stuck with Kirsten's character and then maybe everything we learn about this world, we could learn from her perspective. I think that would have made the story much more personal and much more endearing. And so that's why I don't think that this book is quite as good as some other books that I've read about the end of the world, like The Road, which does really follow one character, or Cloud Cuckoo Land, which does jump around in time, but all those characters their stories are kind of beautifully woven together in a, in a more meaningful way. So that's pretty much it for Station Eleven. It's a good book, not a great book, but it's a good book. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you did, I hope you consider checking out the Anya series, which includes The Feral Girl, Ages of Anya, and the Princess of Anya, in like fashion, the feral girl deals with matters of survival, apocalypse, and it follows the story of one girl and her struggles in a way that I feel is very endearing. And I think by the end of it, you will feel as though you have taken a journey with this character. You can pick up my books directly from nickalamonos.com or you can look up the Anya series on Amazon. Thanks for listening.